Well, good morning. It is always such a joy to be with you all and to worship with you all. That last song uh, is just a one near and dear to my heart. Maybe some of you know my mother recently went to be with the Lord. And I remember as a kid, I was always really worried. In fact, I even made a joke about it that Paul Twist laughed a lot. And it's hard to make British people laugh, so I was really proud of the joke. But I said, you know, as, a, as an Asian worrier, I, I used to worry if my parents went to heaven before me, and if a day in heaven is like a thousand years, how many minutes would it be before I would reach heaven so they wouldn't miss me so much? And, uh, you know, only, only a, a Chinese kid, I think, who had to do a lot of math would calculate anxiety in terms of minutes and conversion rates, but Paul was a former engineer, so he, he really appreciated the joke. But, you know, to soothe a worry heart, my mom would sing that hymn before I would go to bed. And it's absolutely true. Um, whenever we are discouraged or worried, when the fears of this world tempt us to look around the sea of distress... Uh, we, we just need to fix our eyes on him. And that's always what soothes the soul. And along that very line, I am very thrilled to be with EWG every single time I'm invited and every single opportunity I get. I joke around a little bit that one of the perks of presidency is that I get to decide my own schedule, which I thought was true, but it's actually not true at all. But sometimes you can fight for things with a little more authority than normal, And I always fight to do EWG and make time because this is just such a vital ministry. I I love the opportunity to to serve and to share as well as ministering to you all is just amazing. Uh, It is just so astounding and so important and so life-giving to the church to have so many sisters in the Lord equipped for the work of ministry. And so I am thankful to the Lord for your faithfulness and your sacrifice and and what the Lord does through you all for all of us here and all of the people that you interact with, believer and unbeliever. So today's message, in brief, and we need to jump into it because there's a lot to go over, really combines two things that I enjoy studying and talking about and proclaiming. One of them is nerdy. And that's what we call textual criticism. More on that in a second. And the other one is noble, and that is Christ. And what I'd like to do this morning, because our passage is John chapter 8, I'd like to shed some light on what we call textual criticism, how we got the Bible that we got and have, and how it was preserved perfectly, as well as shedding light on the light of the world. So we're going to shed some light on the nerdy issue, and we're also going to understand and shed some light on the most noble matter, who is Christ. And all of this comes from John chapter 8. So turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to that very passage, and we'll begin maybe in verse 1 or even chapter 7, verse 53, and this introduces us to the whole topic of shedding light on the issue of what we call textual criticism. Because if you look at the opening part of John chapter 8 or even John chapter 7 verse 53, you will notice 
that in some translations and some Bibles, those verses aren't even there. And in other Bibles, you may see that it is in brackets. It has these kind of bracketed parenthetical indicators around it, not even the normal kind of parentheses that might be found in a Bible. And so this raises some questions. And ironically, the first part of this message, we're going to be explaining why a text isn't in your Bible or why a text is surrounded by brackets. And this is part of being equipped. You see, there's a lot of people that may come up to you, especially now since conspiracy theories are so popular, and they'll say something along the lines of, well, this is, this is indicative of a cover-up. People really don't know what's in their Bible. People, people really don't know how the Bible was preserved and, and maybe the Bible wasn't preserved and people tampered with it and we don't really know what's in the Bible or if this is the real Bible. And they will try to argue that indicators like the one we have in John chapter 8 is indicative of the fact that you just don't really know what's in the Bible and all the Bible nerds that have put together your Bibles and translators, it's a big conspiracy and it's a big cover-up. People will say this. It's on the internet. It's, it's in people's minds. And, and you need to be aware of why this is there and how to approach it. And let me just put it as simply as I can initially. Why are there brackets? The very fact that there are brackets in the text tells you there's no cover-up. If there was a cover-up, we wouldn't put it in brackets. We wouldn't raise the issue. That's the whole point of covering something up. Kids don't cover up their crime by going to the parent and saying, I did it. (laughs) That's not a cover-up. There are other problems, but that's not a cover-up. And in the same way, when we as translators put brackets in or footnotes in, we're not trying to cover something up. We're trying to actually uncover it for you, trying to explain something to you. You see, a translation is a tool. It's a resource. And what you see in your English Bible is exactly, particularly in the Legacy Standard Bible, our design of it was that what you see in your English Bible is what we see in our Greek and Hebrew Bible. There should be no difference other than the fact that one is English and the other one is Greek and Hebrew. But we wanted to make sure that you saw what we are seeing with all the tools and all the references and all the footnote. We wanted that to transfer over so that you could use your translation the way that we use a Greek and Hebrew Bible, as close as we possibly can get it to be. And therefore, what we're about to talk about should really encourage us. Because a bracket like this is indicative of a process. And a process that really proves and gives evidence that you can with full confidence know the Word of God that you have in front of you is the Word of God. It's the same Bible that earlier church used. It's the same Bible that Jesus and Paul and Peter and Matthew used. It's the same Bible that Isaiah had. It's the same Bible that David had. And that goes all the way back to Moses they use the same Bible. It's been preserved, and we want to demonstrate that here. So, before we jump into John 8, let me just take us a step back. Why do these issues exist? Why why do we even have this whole brackets issue to begin with? Well, we know that God gave his word, inspired. He 
carried the authors along by the Spirit such that they wrote a text, every word of it, inspired. Amen. But not always copied perfectly. You see, back in those days, you didn't have Xerox copy machines. And you didn't have computers that could scan. And human beings aren't always the best copiers. They're not always the best copy machines, especially when sometimes people got disgruntled humans to copy. Or you assigned people to copy things as punishment. It's not helpful. One time a scribe was assigned to copy as a form of punishment for disobedience an entire book in one night. And he did so, but he did it under protest. He wrote everything in huge letters. And then he drew a demon on the front cover. It's actually called Codex Gigantus because it's gigantic. So we have really creative names. But in any case, when you have human beings copying, you have errors. In fact, there was one time an Irish monk who was copying something and he wrote in the margin, it's really cold in here. You could really tell where his concentration was. Yeah, people aren't perfect copy machines. We have errors that can creep in, even in the best of us at times, especially when you're in a long copying session. And if you already have a bad attitude, that doesn't help. But that's why variations can creep into a text. But there are ways to figure it out. There are ways to figure it out. We go based upon two major criteria. Two major criteria. It's very simple to remember. You have external evidence and you have internal evidence. External evidence is including things like the date of a manuscript, a date of a copy. Copies that are closer to the original most likely are more accurate. We talk about geographical distribution. If you have two readings in, from manuscripts in two really, really unrelated different places, well, how did they come up with that? They came up with it because they both knew the original source. They didn't copy off each other. They had something that brought them together. And we can even know this based upon evaluating certain manuscripts and their reliability with each other. You know this. It's the same way that we do Amazon, Yelp, and other business reviews. People have experience interacting with a certain business, and then they rate them. And they say, oh, this person's five stars. You're always going to have a good experience. And when you only have one rating, you say, I don't know about that. But when it has 500 ratings, we get happy and we just click buy right now. And that's what we do. And we understand that. And if there's one rating that's bad, we say, well, 1 Corinthians 3, love, hopes, all things, maybe they're better. But then when they have 7,000 reviews that say, if you, if you go to this business after reading all these reviews, you are the fool of Proverbs, then therefore you don't do it. We understand that. And manuscripts can have that rating too. They have their own Yelp review system, so to speak. And we can know this. In fact, if we played a game here and we don't have time to do this, if I gave a message to different parts of the room, same message, and we started to trace it out, what we could learn is, hey, if two parts of the room that didn't talk to each other are saying the same thing, there's probably some accuracy. That's geography. And we also could probably trace, as the message got further and further back, there might be some variations on that message. So the people closer to me who originally gave the message would be more accurate. That's dating. And we also know that there are just some people here who just want to have some fun. And so they on purpose changed the message. 
but we can identify those people, and they might not be as reliable. And so all of this is external evidence, and the same thing works, in a sense, with manuscripts. And it's not just the external evidence, that's the first category, there's also internal evidence. We know how an author talks. We know their style. We know how scribes make mistakes. We know the common ways that they err. And all of that comes together so that we can establish the original reading. And if you say, really? Like, does that, how does that really work? Okay, let's say, let's say uh, we were writing this MacArthur commentary on the Old Testament. And in the middle of this MacArthur commentary, for some reason, there's this paragraph that says, hey, yo, what's up? This is great. We would say, that's not MacArthur. (laughs) Who copied in some other chat or something like that? Well, if we have vocabulary in a book that doesn't match anything that the author would say, if we have grammatical style in a book that doesn't match anything that the author would do, well, that is already evidence in combination with the external factors that this doesn't belong here. We are not subtracting from God's word at that point. We just want to prevent from adding something into God's word. And what should be very encouraging to us in light of this whole external and internal discernment kind of process, what should be so encouraging is that we have so much evidence. So much evidence. You've probably heard this before, but the Bible, even for the New Testament, has over 2,000 manuscripts. And you say, is that good? Yes, because other ancient documents that we assume They only have in the hundreds maximum. Some only have 10. Some only have seven, and people are really happy with it. We have 2,000. 2,000. And that's just artifacts, or that's just manuscripts, excuse me. If you count artifacts in, it even goes up from there. You say, what do you mean by artifacts? Well, if you remember sometimes teaching children Sunday school, they buy these things from Oriental Trading Company. Have you heard of that company? I still get their catalogs, and, and they have you know, bowls and smiley face stress balls and all kinds of things, and they have Bible verses on them. Well, that's preservation of Scripture. Yes, it's on a toy, but it's still preserved. And if you have a picture on your wall that said a Bible verse, you just preserve Scripture from an archaeological standpoint. Even if we burned all the Bibles of the United States, we would still have the New Testament preserved in the MacArthur commentaries because they all quote from the New Testament. And so we could reassemble the New Testament without any problem. If you add all those pieces of evidence in, you're in the tens of thousands. And that's a lot. That's a lot of evidence. And nerds are happy because they, get, they stay employed sorting through it all. And after all that evidence is sorted, what's the level of match? On average, every document matches 94%. You say, is that good? That's spectacular. That's spectacular. I had a buddy at Cambridge, and he said, you know, you Christians are weird. And I said, I know. It's because we believe Christ died. He's a stumbling block to the Jew. And he's like, no. I mean, that is weird. He's not a believer. But here's why you're weird, per my discipline. He's a textual critic expert. He said, if you have an 84% match, 84% match between two documents, it's original. That's the consensus of the scholars. It's original you have on average between 2,000 manuscripts, 94% match. And you guys are all getting bent out of shape about the six. You guys are weird. 
And I said, well, we are weird. We're weird because we believe the gospel, but that's because God must enlighten our eyes and you should believe the gospel. And we are also weird about this because we believe every word is inspired. We believe it. And here's what's amazing. The match is so tight. We not only know what words are in the text, we know how they were spelled. Because back then, spelling wasn't standardized. I wish I lived back then. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> You didn't have spelling as a subject because you could spell things different ways and it'd be correct. And we know how the words were spelled, which means you don't just know what word is there, you know every letter. That's how granular we can get it. It's amazing. It's amazing to think about. And so when we talk about this subject of textual criticism, it shouldn't scare us one bit. The reason we put brackets in the text is because we don't have anything to hide. We have the greatest confidence. Because we know what the evidence concludes. And it concludes that the word of God has been preserved. Yes, do copies have mistakes? People aren't the greatest copy machines. We recognize that. But in God's providence, he has preserved a corpus of data that allows us to know the scriptures have been maintained with confidence. That's what he's allowed us to do. And you might say, okay, now how does that tie into John chapter 7, verse 53 through, say, 8, 11? How does that all work there? Well, why is it in brackets? Because back in the day when the King James Version was being produced, at that time, the authors of, or the translators of the King James Version, even though they wrote in their introduction, hey, this may need to be updated as more manuscripts come to light, they included this portion. And so what becomes problematic is that in light of the fact that versification and familiarity is given with this passage, you just can't take it out of the Bible. On one hand, you would have a marketing problem. People would get up in arms and start protesting publishers and say, hey, these people are ripping stuff out of their Bible and their Bible would never sell. So for avaricious reasons, they don't do it. But on the other hand, you'd have ecclesial problems. Everyone turned to John 8.1 and everyone's John 8.1 is different. You can't do that. You got, and then you can't just say, well, we'll just omit it. And all of a sudden you go from chapter 7, verse 52 to chapter 8, verse 12 people are going to be flipping around and saying, where'd it go? I got a defective Bible, a typo, a big typo. I think they meant one, not one, two, you know? That's what they would be thinking. And so we need to have full disclosure of what is going on. And so that's why we put things in brackets to evidence it. And let me just help you to walk through those two factors that I talked about, external evidence and internal evidence, just so that you can kind of play the detective and see for yourself what is going on here. And it's simple. If you look at the external evidence, all the manuscripts and the date and the geography and everything, it gets pretty clear. The oldest manuscripts don't include this. Only the less old are the younger manuscripts or more recent manuscripts they included. And in fact, here's what's fascinating. Not all of them even included in John. Some put this in Luke. Some put this in different places in John and different places in Luke. One commentator said, this is like a story trying to find a home. And what that indicates is people knew this wasn't supposed to be there, but they really liked it. And so they just wanted to kind of put it somewhere. 
And that's what you start to look from the external evidence. Whoa, there's a consensus here about what was present, and this doesn't meet that criteria. And then on top of that, on top of that, let's look at internal evidence. Here's a simple illustration. Notice, we're familiar with the story. A crowd has gathered around Jesus, and Jesus, uh, in the story of the adulterous woman, the whole crowd leaves. Do you remember this? As soon, and then Jesus says to the adulterous woman, who condemns you? And she says, no one. He goes, okay, you can go. So at the end of this scene, Jesus is all by himself. Everyone's gone. It's a good deal. Well, then the next verse says, therefore, again, he said to them, who's the them? How they all reappear? Everyone's gone. And then what happens? Presumably, everyone shows back up. How'd that happen? No warning. And why is then there a therefore? How does that work? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Here can be another kind of discrepancy problem. It records that Jesus, at this time in the setting, is in the temple precinct. And it talks about, if you remember, that he was drawing in the dirt on the ground. Do you remember this? Well, we know from archaeology that the temple precinct had no dirt. It's made out of stone. So how do you draw on the dirt when there's really no dirt? And you might say, well, it got a little dusty. You know, they didn't, they didn't really follow cleaning protocol. Well, that could be true, but um, I've been there. You need a lot more not cleaning protocol to, to accumulate the dirt that you would need for, to do this kind of activity. There are some problems. And what this demonstrates is, is that this is an insertion. This is an insertion. The external evidence has already tipped you off. People are trying to figure out where to put this story. They can't figure it out. And they didn't even try to do it until later in the tradition, later in the manuscript copying process. It wasn't found earlier on because it wasn't there. And then on top of that, the insertion becomes clear because the story's interrupted. It actually doesn't make a lot of sense if you put it here. And that's just a key indicator. And all of this is evidence that when we put brackets here, we don't do it for no reason. We do it for every reason, to be transparent, to show you that there is no cover-up. Maybe parts of this story historically happen, but this is not what the Lord wanted us to know. It's not necessary for us to know for life and godliness. You might wonder, you said when more manuscript evidence comes about, we kind of refine. Has there been more manuscript evidence that has put anything that we have so far in question? And here's the answer. We have found more manuscript evidence, but guess what? hasn't done a thing. We have such a large and substantial sample size now that all the new evidence does is just confirm what we have. Confirm what's already in your Bible. Confirm what's already in the footnotes. And that's a great encouragement. You have the Word of God. You have the Word of God. Well, I have hope that this sheds some light on sometimes a tricky topic, the topic of textual criticism and how God has preserved His Word. And indeed, He has. He's preserved it down to every letter. And we have evidence of that. And we can have confidence of that. And we can be bold in that. And so when you see a bracket like you do at the beginning of John 8, there's no need to be scared. There's actually every reason to be encouraged. Because we know what's in the Bible. And we know also what is not in the Bible. It's both and. Well, that sheds light on the first topic. But let's, instead of talking about what's not in the Bible... Let's talk about what is in the Bible. 
And let's shed some light, not on a nerdy subject, but on the most noble one. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. John chapter 8, verse 12. Let me set the scene. John, the gospel, is such a profound book. Unlike any other gospel in its message and even in some of the stories that are preserved inherently within, we know that the overarching message is so clear. It is this evangelistic call, this presentation of Jesus as the Messiah. We understand that. And we can even see how John uniquely takes us down a road less traveled and preserves the life of Christ in such a way that brings out his humanity and his deity. You can think of the flow of John's gospel like this. The beginning of John, you have a week into the life of Christ. Why a week? Because it matches creation week. In fact, the very last day of that week is in John chapter 2, where you have a wedding. Who was the one who presumed and presided over the original wedding? God in the Garden of Eden, between Adam and his wife, and in the same way that happens with Jesus. And not only do you have creation, and then after that, Jesus starts to rename people, rename individuals like Peter. And in the book of Genesis, God renamed people Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel, Sarai to Sarah. The same thing is happening. The same parallel is happening. And then, speaking of Jacob, John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at the well. And it makes it very clear in John chapter 4, John goes out of his way to say, and this well was dug by who? Jacob. In fact, the woman says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? And the answer is, yes, he is. He was there with them too. And he was greater with them back then as he is now. And so now you have creation. Now you have renaming in Genesis. Now you have Jacob. And then in John 5 and 6, you have the feeding of the 5,000 and the crossing of the waters, just like God provided in the wilderness for Israel and crossed the Red Sea. It's the Exodus. And what John is doing is he's saying, look at the life of Christ. And if you really look carefully, God has designed it perfectly so that it actually maps onto Israel's history. And what you learn is that the God of Israel is the God of John, is Jesus. Jesus is the God of Israel. And this is the whole flow of the book of John. And with that, what we learn is that John has been narrating Jesus's life to demonstrate over and over from a variety of angles that Jesus is truly the Son of God that he is the Messiah, that he is God incarnate. The word became flesh. That is what he is demonstrating. Even the flow of it demonstrates that. And then there are all the details. So profound. Trinitarian relations expressed and explained all the way through. I am statements demonstrating and declaring his deity. Seven signs that demonstrate and proclaim who he is. This is a book that is dense in both the big picture and the granular details, and all of it expresses who Jesus is. And when you get to John chapter 7 and 8, as the progression of the book has gone forward, you have creation and Jacob and the Exodus, and which would include Passover. And now in John 7, you have the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost this is just another stage of Israel's history mapped up in parallel with Christ's own life. The Feast of Booths is also a title for it. And it's a feast that features not only booths and tents, but light, but light. And so it is very fitting 
that Jesus would talk about himself as the light of the world, which is a clear attestation to deity. And in John chapter 7, he begins to introduce this subject because people say, hey, are you going to come out clearly? Are you going to present yourself publicly? Are you going to come out into the light is the idea? And Jesus says, I'm not, I don't need to do that. I am the light. I am the light. And in John chapter 7, what does light do? It exposes darkness. It exposes sin. And in John chapter 7, Jesus systematically, comprehensively exposes unbelievers' sin, unbelievers' blindness, unbelievers' wickedness. And then let's just jump the gun a little bit. John chapter 9, when this whole story concludes, this whole section concludes, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. Isn't that what the light of the world would do? Give sight to those who cannot see? And if I had a way to summarize John 9, it would be this. Who's really blind anyway? Who's really blind anyway? It's not the blind man. That's the ironic thing. It's the religious leaders and the Jewish people around him. They're the ones who are blind. You know, you have funny things like this that happen. They go up to the blind man and they say, who healed your eyes? And he says, I don't know. I couldn't see. (laughs) Who's really blind anyway? They don't understand the truth when they can see. He does, even though he was blind. And it exposes that Jesus truly is the light of the world. And so from John 7 to 9, he's the light of the world. And in John chapter 8, which is tucked in the middle of John 7 and 9, you have Jesus as the light. And you really can see that so clearly. He's light, man's darkness. He's light, man is blind. And that's the very thesis. If you're in John 8, you can see it in John 8 verse 12. Jesus announces this outright. He announces it outright. Therefore, again, he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. What does that mean in part? What does that mean in part? When Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, that is a clear attestation to deity. God is light, and we know he wields the light, and he creates the light. From Genesis 1, we learn that. He spoke, let there be light, and there was light. Light pierces through the darkness. Light overcomes the darkness. That's what takes place. It illuminates and gives life. Therefore, therefore, in light of this clear attestation to deity. Oh, and there's other passages that talk about too. Psalm 27. O Yahweh, my light and my redeemer. Psalm 36, verse 9, it says this. In you, there is light. Psalm 139 says this. Even when there is darkness, darkness is not dark for you, for you are light. God has an unquenchable, unquenchable light. That's what he has. That's why Isaiah 42 and 49 in talking about the Messiah say this, he is the light of the world. He's the light to the Gentiles because he breaks through the darkness of sin and he gives people the light of his wisdom that gives them the light of life that overcomes darkness and death. That's what he does. And God alone can do that. And that's what our Lord proclaims here. Whoever follows me, walks after me, will never walk in darkness. You have a choice. You either cling to the light or you're going to be exposed as the one who walks in darkness. 
You're either going to have the light that gives you life, or you're going to be immersed in darkness and blindness and death. And here's a property of light that we don't often think about, but we know it, especially in the age of paparazzi and smartphones. Light doesn't just expose darkness, it can blind you. That's why we don't like flash photography. Because when the flash goes, ah, I can't see, and then you blink, and then you have to do it again. Just this never-ending cycle. And you just realize you're always going to blink. So that's why they have Photoshop. So in any case, the idea is light, light can expose darkness, but for people in darkness, when the light shines, it blinds them. And they're really blind. And what we're going to see as we walk through this chapter is a conversation between the religious leaders and religious people and Jesus. And Jesus will be constantly demonstrated to be so clear, so brilliant, so in the light. And the people, therefore, they're blind. They're in the darkness, which means the light is shining bright. And by contrast, you see who Christ is. So, Here are some points to think about. We just talked about John 8, verse 12. Let's talk about what people don't understand because they're in the darkness. Here's one thing they don't understand, the truth. They don't understand the truth. Verses 13 through 18. Verses 13 through 18. Pharisees said to him, you testify concerning yourself, therefore your testimony is not true. They're quoting something that Jesus said earlier that even in the law, You need the testimony of two or three witnesses to verify something, to verify something. But let's be a little bit sharper than them, and let's actually show that we understand the nature of truth. Two or three witnesses doesn't make whatever you say true. It doesn't make whatever you say true. Yes, it can validate it. Yes, it can verify it, but it would verify what it always is. It doesn't just automatically become true just because you get two or three people to sign off on it. We know that. A kid can be telling the truth, even if there are no witnesses around, and a kid could be lying and got his friends to help him lie. This is what makes movies and parenting. This is what we know. We understand that. The Pharisees, in trying to trip Jesus up, expose something they will twist the nature of truth. They will twist the nature of truth, and Jesus, as the light, will expose them. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I'm testifying concerning myself, my testimony, my witness, is true. Why? Because I know where I'm from and where I'm going because of his divine nature. Jesus needs no validation or verification. Whatever he says is the truth, Because it is the truth. Jesus understands the nature of truth. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, do not. And in fact, what they reveal is their ignorance. But you do not know where I am coming or where I am going. Here's their problem, verse 15. All they do is they judge according to the flesh. In other words, they judge on the outside. They judge with the most limited evidence. They don't know how to find the truth. They don't know how to figure out the truth. Jesus doesn't make that kind of judgment. And even if I judge, Jesus says in verse 16, my judgment is true. And not only that, because I am not alone. I am not the only one who testifies, but also the one who sent me. That is the Father. 
And so Jesus actually has two people saying the same thing, himself and his own what? Father. And they have the exact same testimony. And because they have the exact same testimony, what is Jesus demonstrating? They say the same things. Why do they say the same things? Because they ultimately are one. And here Jesus turned the whole situation around. These Pharisees said, we thought we got you because you don't have the right kind of testimony. And what Jesus exposes, you don't understand truth. You're completely lost. You don't understand my nature. There's, you're speaking out of ignorance. You're speaking out of externality. And not only that, if you actually pried a little bit deeper, you would actually see that this is actually evidence that I am God because I actually know the truth. And my father and I, we're one because we have the same testimony. Here's an irony. People who are lost always want proof. Have you noticed that? Well, Jesus got to prove that to me. You got to prove that to me. But the irony of the whole situation is they don't even know the nature of truth. They're asking for all this evidence and all this proof, and they don't know the truth. They don't know what truth looks like. They don't know what truth is. It's the greatest irony ever, and it exposes they're in the dark. They're lost. But if Jesus is not that, if he's distinct from them, if they're dark, it's this pretty simple binary, then he's what? Light, and he's God, and that's what he's demonstrating. They don't understand truth. Look, they don't understand what it means to be divine, verses 19 and 20. So this is their new response. Where is your father? They ask a question, and they expose in that. Now they're even more clueless. They had assumed that they had known Jesus. They had assumed that they knew what his, who his father was in chapter 7. And now they reveal, well, maybe we don't know. We don't know. And Jesus says, okay, if you don't know my father, then you can't know me. Because to know me, you have to know my father. That's found in verse 19 at the end. But because you don't know my father, you can't possibly know me. And so the Jewish people have assumed, we know who you are. You're just a man. You're just a nobody. And all of a sudden, they realize, by their own mouth, they confess. Well, actually, we don't really know what we just said we knew. So who's really in the dark? They are. And who's in the light? Jesus. And what has he just proven? That he's God. And on top of that, verse 20, verse 20 is a active demonstration, as in, hello, it's obvious who this guy is. Why? He was speaking these words, teaching in the temple, and no one what? Seized him. Look, it's really easy to silence one man when you have a posse already assembled, when you control the special forces, when you control the temple guard. It's easy. You just remove the guy. And here the whole time, he keeps talking and talking and talking and saying these things, and yet no one, what, lays a finger on him. The whole time, Jesus has made it so clear. Have you guys ever thought about this? Have you ever thought why you can't seize me? I mean, the best thing ever was when they actually tried to send a bunch of people to seize him at the end of the chapter 7, and the people came back and they didn't seize him, and the Pharisees said, why didn't you do it? And they said, no one talks like this man. He's so good. Hint, this is no normal man if that happens. If you can convert the special forces to like the guy and renege on their mission, maybe he's not a criminal and maybe he's not a normal guy. The whole time he's been demonstrating his divinity, the whole time he's been indicating who his father is, 
and yet they say, we don't know. Well, then who's in the dark? Who's the one that's clueless? Not Jesus, them. They're in the dark. He's the opposite. He's the light. He's God. So they don't understand truth. They don't understand divinity. And third, they're earthly-minded, verses 21 through 24. Verses 21 through 24. Therefore, he again said to them, I will go, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Jesus is speaking of his death, resurrection, and ascension, and the fact that the Jewish people will always be searching for a Messiah, but they'll be searching for him wrongly, and because they search for him wrongly, they will die in their sins. They'll die in their unbelief, because where Jesus is going, they can't go. Now, notice how they interpret his words. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him, he's not going to kill himself. Jesus is speaking of the offer of salvation. How did the Jews interpret it to be? Suicide. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. You see what you want to see. This is more indicative of their own heart than anything. And in light of that, what does our Lord say? Verse 23, he was saying to them, you are of below, and I am what? Above. This is your problem. You guys are earthly minded, clearly. Because if you can think about the offer of salvation and the warning of seeking Christ and think that means suicide, who has the warped mind? You do. Who has the mind plunged in darkness? You do. Not me. I wasn't talking about that at all. Why? Because he's from above. From above. Which means they're earthly. He's heavenly. He's divine. They're lost. He knows the truth. They're filled with lies. And this is what Jesus has been conveying to them. He says, and you're going to die in your sins. For unless, verse 24, you believe that I am he. I am. I'm Yahweh. I'm the one in Isaiah. And I'm the one in Exodus you will die in your sins. And so this whole time, Jesus shown, I'm in the light. I have clarity on truth. I have clarity about my divinity. I have clarity about heavenly things. And he shows so clearly, by contrast, they are in darkness. They don't know the truth. They don't understand divinity. They don't understand heavenly things. They're earthly-minded. And the contrast just solidifies who Christ is. And everything in this debate, shall we say, or this discussion, has been pushing to this point that we see in verses 25 through 30. I love this. Therefore, they were saying to him, what? Who are you? This whole time, they have said, we know who you are. We know where you're from. We know what you're about. And what has Jesus said? No, you don't. No, you don't. And finally, what do they say? No, we don't. We don't understand anything. Who's the real blind one then? Yeah, Who's the real blind one? And I, and I love this. I, you know, Jesus says to them, verse 25, this is great. It just exposed everything. What, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? What's his point? You're not just blind, you're deaf. I've been telling you this the whole time. I haven't changed anything that I've said. Why is it that you can't understand me? Simple, because they're in the darkness and they can't see the light. They're totally blind. They're totally exposed. Jesus has been saying it over and over and over and over again. And they've just made assumption and presumption, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They won't get it. They won't get it at all. And Jesus said, okay, 
Let me help you. All right. Verse 26. I, I have a lot more to tell you. I have a lot more to tell you. But the one who sent me is true. And I hear from him these things that I speak into this world. The idea is simply this. I, I could talk to you about a lot more things. But just even the basic things I've had to tell you from the beginning and you don't get it is enough to what? Condemn you. I can't even talk to you about more things if you can't even get the basic things that I've talked to you. And if you can't get the basic things that it talks to you, then that, what that confirms is who you are and who he is. You're in the dark. And if you don't like this guy, that must mean he's in the light. That's the only way this works. And in fact, they're so in the dark, verse 27, they did not know that he was speaking to them about the Father. They didn't even know he was talking about God. They couldn't understand. And so Jesus says, okay, let me help you. Let me make it as clear as possible. When the Son of Man, when you lift up the Son of Man, talking about the crucifixion, ultimately the ascension, when the Son of Man is that lifted up, and notice, what has he called himself at that point? The Son of Man. Who is Jesus? The Son of Man. What does that mean? That goes back to Daniel chapter 7. And it's a title for the final Adam. It's a title for the last man, the one who has dominion over all the earth. Jesus says, let me help you. Can you understand this? I am the Son of Man, come to die. Then you will know, what's the next phrase? That I am what? He. Then you'll know that I'm God. Does that help? I'm the Messiah? I'm God? And if, you, if that doesn't make it clear, let me just help you this way. Just as the Father taught me these things I speak, we have the same language. The one who sent me is with me even now, and he does not abandon me because I do the things that please him. I do what God does. God is with me. He is with me even now. I was God. I am God. You will know that I am God when you see this prophecy fulfilled, and I am therefore the Messiah. Clear enough? Clear enough? But they didn't get it. Why? Because they're in darkness and he's in light. But some people did. Verse 30. These things he was speaking and many what? Believed in him. It was clear enough. When you spell it all out and you have been spelling it out the whole time, many believed in him. Why? Because he had the words of life. He, had the, he was the light of the world. And he could make himself clear. And those who resisted him, all they exposed about themselves was this. They were in darkness, and he's light. It's funny. These people were trying to argue with Jesus to disprove him, and all they did in their efforts is what? Prove him. They just proved him. They just proved that they were the ones being disproven, and Jesus is the one who is light. That's what light does. It blinds. It exposes. And it exudes its own lightfulness, illuminating quality. Well, in the latter half of the chapter, though, Jesus shed some more light. And it's very convicting. You see, he shed light on unbelievers. We see that. He shed light on people who opposed him and revealed who they were and are. And those people couldn't escape from it. But here's what he does at the end of chapter 8. He exposes people who look like believers. He exposed people who look like believers. Notice what it says in verse 31. Therefore, Jesus was saying to those, the Jews, who had believed about him. Notice that language there. It's not 
it's in Greek, it's a little bit different than what you saw in verse 30. There are people who believed in Jesus. That's sincere belief. But there are people who believed about Jesus. And that's not sincere saving faith. But sometimes those two individuals, they're hard to differentiate for us as normal human beings, yes? People who can walk the walk and talk the talk, but their heart is not there, yes? It's very hard to be able to discern what goes on on the inside because somebody on a Sunday morning can be worshiping with all their heart and singing really, really loud and really, really well, but they're not sincere. We know that. But you know what's so profound about Jesus and what makes him God is he can tell the difference because he's the light of the world. He's the light of the world. And so what Jesus does in the end of this chapter, and oh boy, I got to finish. So um, what he does in this chapter, it's beautiful and it's convicting. He like peels the onion on these people's lives. Takes something on the surface and gets deeper and deeper and then just says, and this is who you are. And then they show by their actions, it is who we are. And let me show you how that works. What's the outer layer of this onion of people's lives? He says this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's what light does. When you abide in him, and you abide in his word, the light, it always overcomes darkness. That's what light does. And it overcomes the darkness of sin. So the only way you can get out of sinfulness is to abide in Christ, to turn your eyes on Jesus, to abide in his word, to have it deeply dwell and transform in you as it dispels the darkness of sin and wickedness from your life. We know that. That's the only way you can have freedom. But to have that freedom, what does that presume? That you know you are a slave. If you already think you're free, you don't need freedom. The only way you need freedom is you have to first recognize you're a slave. And what do people say? We're the seed of Abraham, verse 33. We're enslaved to no one and at no time. What does Jesus say? The call is for obedience. The call is for transformation. If you're a true believer and you know the light of the world, that's what the light does in your life. But... If you're not, that outer layer of sanctification, that outer layer of obedience, that outer layer of truly abiding in Christ's word, that outer layer of recognizing that I am a slave to sin and I need to stop that, that won't be there. And he exposed it. They said, we're not slaves. We're not slaves. He exposed their slavery. And Jesus answered verse 34 and said, Verily, verily, I say to you that everyone who does sin is a what? Slave of sin. If you habitually sin, you're a slave to it. And his warning is clear. A slave doesn't abide in the master's house for forever. You need to know that. If the son sets you free, then you're free indeed. I know that you are the seed of Abraham. But he says this, but then why would you seek to kill me? Why would you seek to kill me? Why would you do that? He exposes their slavery. He exposes, your actions speak louder than words. And what this shows you is that you're not free. You're fake believers. And I can tell because he's the light of the world. Because you don't abide in the light and your life's not being transformed and that's not really taking place and you have no intention of that to happen because you're not of the light. You're a slave. And you're not a slave to God. You're a slave to your sin. 
Well, then he has to peel the onion a little bit more. So what if you're a little bit slave to sin? Is that a real big deal? Verse 39 and following to verse 47 exposes their identity. They answered and said to him, our father is Abraham. They say, that's who we are. We don't need the help. We are of Abraham. And Jesus says, if you were children of Abraham, then do the works of who? Abraham. Here's the problem. Are you really of Abraham? Is that really your identity? Is that really where you belong? Is that really the category that you're in? And his point is this. You don't do what Abraham does. You're not of him. That's not your true identity. If you're really enslaved to sin, what happens when you're enslaved to sin is now you seek, verse 40, to kill me, a man who has spoken to you the truth. This Abraham did not do. Abraham might have sinned in a lot of different ways. We know that, but he never tried to kill God. He never tried to reject the Messiah. He didn't do that. And so what does Jesus say? Here's what you're doing. Yes, whatever you do reflects who you are. And what are you doing? You're aligning not with Abraham. Abraham would never do that. You're aligning with your father, the, verse 44, the devil. Because your father, that's what he loves to do. He has been a murderer from the beginning, and he never liked the truth. He never stood in the truth. What is Jesus saying? People say, well, Jesus, I don't need to be freed. I'm already free. And Jesus says, then you're really lost. Well, I'm not that lost. I got, I'm Abraham. I can't be that lost. No, no, no. You're, let me just help you out here. Let me expose what's really going on. You're not, you might be biologically of Abraham, but you're spiritually not of Abraham. You are of your father who? The devil. That's your true identity. So he's exposed their slavery. He's exposed that they're satanic, if you want to use another S. I don't have a final S anyway. But uh, he, he exposes their perversity. Or I guess you could say he exposes their sinfulness. But that's not a strong enough word, I, I suppose. But and that's what happens at the end. And they say, we know that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon. When you call the Holy One of God evil, you know you're completely upside down. Yeah? They're perverse. He says, I don't have a demon. You have it totally backwards. And Jesus, with the greatest clarity, with the greatest clarity, starts to remind them who he is. He's the one who honors his father. He's the one who gives life and you wouldn't taste death. He's the one who's greater than Abraham, verse 53. He's the one who possesses the father's glory, verse 54. He's the one who has all these things. And he's the one, therefore, verse 56, that our father Abraham would have rejoiced to see my day. That's what would happen because he's God. And he said this, before Abraham was what? I am. He says, that's who I am. And here's what happens. They have it so backwards. They've, but Jesus has peeled off the layers. The layers of them saying, I, I'm, I'm fine. I, I, I'm not enslaved to anything. Oh, oh, I'm fine. I'm a Jewish person. I've got the religious trappings. Oh, oh, I'm fine because you're wrong and I'm right. And he's peeled off all the layers and he's revealed who they are. And what has he said? You he kept saying over and over, that is our Lord. You keep seeking to kill me. What happens at the end of the chapter? Verse 59. Therefore, they picked up stones in order to what? Stone him. 
The whole time they're saying, ah, we're not trying to kill you. We're not trying to kill you. We're not trying to kill you. And then what happens? They try to kill him. Why? Because that's what the light does. It exposes who you really are. And who are they? They're not the Abraham who would rejoice to see this day. They're of their father, the devil, who has been a murderer from the beginning. And he just drew out what was always there. He's the light of the world. Nothing escapes him. And on one hand, on one hand, you cannot fake God. You can't. He's the light of the world. He sheds light on darkness. And if you think I can just play the game and I can look good, but God, God will accept that, no, he won't. He will expose you. And he will reveal that you are not of the light. You are of Satan. He knows that. You cannot fake God out. And he is the light and man is of darkness. And he is pure light and man is blind. And man doesn't understand the truth or divinity. And he's earthly minded and he doesn't understand the Messiah. Which all emphasizes and proves by contrast who our Lord is. But here's the glory of it. Here's the glory of it. He's light. And if you abide in his word, he dispels sin. That's the power of light. The light that blinds is also the light that sets you free. And the question for us, and it's the question of John, is do we know the light? Not just about the light, that's fundamental, that Jesus is that light, that Jesus has that light. He just proved it. Everybody proved it, whether they like to or not. They all proved it. But we don't just want to know, as verse 31 says, about him. We want to make sure, verse 30, that we believe in him. Yes? And that is the call. We want to be those who abide in his word and in his light. And when he does that, that light illumines every man and sets us free. Amen? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we love that you are light. Every aspect and every characterization of you Every description of you is magnificent. It's splendid. And light is one of those. Help us to meditate on the fact that you are light, that you shine light and expose darkness. Nothing can hide from your light. Nothing can hide from you. And on one hand, that should cause us to run from our sin. But on the other hand, it should cause us to rejoice because there is no sin and there is no darkness that the light cannot dispel. And the light cannot transform. And the light cannot change. You are the light of the world. And if we walk and follow you, we will have the light of true life. Freedom from sin and darkness. We thank you for that. And may we honor you as the light with our whole life that you have given to us. In your name we pray. Amen.